So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but. What is art and what is artistic expression is not the issue before us today. The issue is, what is the governmental responsibility in arriving at a decision to place art that is paid for with public funds in a public plaza or other public place? I emphasize that we are not concerned with private art paid for with private funds to be placed on private property. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I'm not singing it this week because I got done last time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the It's Nice That podcast with me, Alex Beck. And me, Will Hudson. It's Nice That is a website showcasing creative work from all around the world. We look at everything from design and illustration to video, photography and everything else in between. In this series, we're going to pick creative things that people like and experience, whether that's Christmas ads, album covers, video games and work out why they're successful. And this episode, we're talking about public art. Where do you start? I thought public art was going to be easy. And then you start trying to kind of form opinions on it. It just causes so many questions. It's not as easy as a gallery being able to go, right, here's what we're commissioning or here's the work we're showing. It's in this room. Come and have a look. You're saying, here's some art that we're going to stick in front of everyone, regardless of whether or not they want to see it or not, whether or not they have any understanding of art or not, whether or not they know the motives behind the piece of work or not. And we're really talking about public art and the fourth plinth really today because last week an exhibition was launched at the National Gallery to display the shortlist for the next fourth plinth commission, which is a project where artists submit artwork to go on one of the empty plinths at Trafalgar Square, right? which has been going since 1998. I can't believe it's been going so long. And obviously the current one, which I think we're both kind of big fans of, is the David Trigley one, which most recently everyone's obviously been talking about, which is the big thumb, the really good. I think you've got the pin badge that you kind of wear and always gets a reaction from people. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's a huge, massive sculpture of a thumbs up, basically, and it says really good underneath it. Does it even say really good on it? It doesn't have a placard, does it? I don't know. Good question. <laughs> if our audience were worried about whether this was going to be highbrow or not, <laughs> it's obviously not going to be highbrow. Don't worry about that. I'm a big fan of the artworks that have been shown on the fourth plinth. Revisiting them earlier, I can't remember a dud. I can't remember one that I was like, ah, no, not for me. But I think the fourth plinth is a bit of an anomaly within the topic of public art because it's in a touristy environment. It's in somewhere that kind of tourists flock to and there's something to look at. And I think as a result, the commissioning of it has kind of reflected that. And I think it does a good job of generating conversation and debate and, I mean, the amount of traffic that goes past there. And a lot of pigeons as well. Do you think they're fans? Have we spoken to the pigeons? (laughs) If we haven't, then this is ridiculous. We should have spoken to the pigeons. Here's a question for you. What's on the other three plinths? Uh, A lion? No, not on a plinth. Um, There are lions in Trafalgar Square. A horse. Someone on a horse. Yeah, good. Given. uh, Just a person. Yeah, two of them, basically. Okay. I think. That's from my research. I didn't didn't go down there. But isn't it mad we don't know what's on the other ones? That's why, again, the fourth plinth I think is so good because it brings a reason to kind of celebrate and talk about and, and, and a topic of conversation, whereas you can't, you can't go around expecting people to know what's on every plinth around London. I think the... Uh... All right, I'm not expecting. <laughs> right, Old every... Street, plinth on uh, Exit 4, what's how on many, that one? How many plinths do you think there are in London? A lot, really? but, but this, this I think is a great point and question to ask. Do you consider the statues of historical figures on a horse as public art? You have to, right? Because by definition, they are sculptures, so they're an artwork, right? Who is the most recent historical figure that you can remember there being a statue made of? Thierry Henry. Uh, um, the Emirates. 
Public art? Of course, public art. Because you can go and see it for free and it's in the public domain, right? I'm desperate now to know your favourite and uh, least favourite. Right. Favourite is um, those gormly dudes walking out to sea in Crosby Beach. It's eerie, right? It's amazing. I think it's absolutely incredible. Because of the way it makes you feel and, I don't know, it just seems, yeah, it's otherworldly. And I saw it on a very grim, cold day and it just felt, yeah, it felt amazing. I thought they were brilliant. They, but I, I, they just posed loads of questions to me, more around like health and safety or... Um, it was oh, quite, yes. It's kind of quite... <laughs> what, like, are they going to fall over on someone? Yeah, or if you swim into them. Or... Well. I found it really eerie, though, because we went on like quite a wintry afternoon where there's next to no one else on the beach and you just get these figures that mm. are kind of three-quarters submerged in the water and you do have that moment of like, is, is that a sculpture? Is that someone... It's great, and it's also special because of its interaction with the place, right? It's special because the tide comes in now. I think it's so intrinsically important to a piece of public art obviously where it is and it's staying in that place but i love that it's completely understandable immediately even if you understand the wrong thing that you can engage with it very quickly like the shriggly thumb yes there's debate there but i don't feel alienated or i don't feel stupid looking at it what would you put on the fourth plinth will it's hard isn't it it is hard what are you putting on it given the given the chance um i thought about it quite a lot and I think that I'd either, if because it's Trafalgar Square, I'd either put a scarecrow there, a massive scarecrow, so all the pigeons went, or I'd put a massive, life-size, really mega-realistic pigeon there, like a huge one, like 20 foot long, so that just to see what all the pigeons would do. Because that's the only place you could put a massive pigeon and really see some good reaction, I think. So. You're right, that is the only place you could put a massive pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's probably bored of hearing us talk about public art by now, Will. So we also spoke to the people of Trafalgar Square about what they thought about it. I love Trafalgar Square. I love, love all the bits in it. They're fantastic. At the moment, I'm loving the fun. Um, it's comical, satirical. Positivity. I think it's an outlook on just keeping it real. I think it's thumbs up for London. Yeah. They got through the war. I'm not impressed. To me, it's not really art. Um, but it makes you think. We both looked at it and said, well, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> I don't think it's really good. The thumb is too long. It annoys me. Um, no impression. It seems a bit out of place, to be honest with you. I don't think it's out of place. I think it's it's nice to see the contrast between the uh, the old and the new. We have a cousin who lost his thumb in an accident and it was replaced by a toe and we've just taken a photo of that because it's just so dead like his hand. <laughs> I'm not a big art guy. I just like to look at them. If it's pretty to me or if it's nice to me, then I'll look at it. I don't really care for the history. Uh, favorite sculpture? I do like the lions by uh, Nelson's Column. Why do you like them? I like lions. Pretty good, aren't they? They look like lions. <laughs> all the children have climbed all over them. And... Of course you should. You should be allowed to. That's what that's what they mean. That's why they're there. You should be allowed to ride the lions. I think there are some statues that should be kept there, depending on what kind of historical significance it has. But it's always nice to see something new. So. It can be something from the last hundred years instead of like three hundred years ago. Shouldn't change. Shouldn't change at all. Ever on that. It's standard. It's what's what's there. I don't mind stuff added, but not certainly nothing taken away. Keeps it alive. I'm in the fourth place. It's just it's it's London anyways. It's a it's a landmark. It's just part of the British history. But cousin Jerome, that is your hand. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that woman said that her cousin Jerome had had a thumb cut off and replaced with a toe? <laughs> that's the next episode sorted. That is phenomenal. I do think that sums up absolutely perfectly like what that thing is there to do. Is is just everyday people seeing it because it's totally unavoidable and and having an opinion on it. Right, so we're both quite into it. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to be speaking to the only professor of public art and founder of Grey World, Andrew Chauvin, about what he thinks is the purpose of public art and the right way to produce it. We'll also be speaking to listings advisor from Historic England, Posey Metz, about why public art is valuable to communities and why we should preserve some of it. And finally, we'll be speaking to Michael Rakovitz, the artist behind The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, one of the entries in this year's shortlist for the fourth plinth. 
mother arrives in Parliament Square for the unveiling of a statue of Winston Churchill. VIPs and politicians of all parties are present as the Queen arrives. The Queen says there is no man whose name and fame are more certain of an enduring place than Winston Churchill. How do you describe or define what public art is? I think I use the proper layman's term of just art that exists in public, um, so easily accessible. I am acutely aware that that probably dumbs it down massively. But that's that's kind of my interpretation. That's why I think it's kind of a catch-all for everything from uh, statues, memorials, graffiti, um, or street art, all the way through to kind of the commissions like the Fourth Plinth. Why don't we ask our next guest, Professor of Public Art and Computation at Goldsmith College and founder of Grey World, Andrew Shoban, who's currently looking after his kid, who is actually dressed up as a pirate. Andrew, hello, it's Alex and Will. Hi, hi, how you doing? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, very well, thank you. Yourself? So far, so good. So, basically, we're talking about public art today, and we understand you are the Professor of Public Art at Goldsmith College. Can you tell us a little the bit about professor, that? Professor, absolutely. The, the one and only <laughs> yeah, Professor. There is, yes. There's only one, as far as I know. Tell us what that means. What, what do you, what's the role? Well, we get, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got a, a course at uh, Goldsmith, which is involved not just with the creation and kind of the thinking of public art, but also the doing and the making, which, which means we end up with some really interesting conversations. You know, universities are quite tribal. I don't know if you guys have spent any time there. I'm sure you have, but if you do, you find that this department often won't talk to that, that one, you know, what do you mean we're new media? What's happened to old media? There are all kinds of, <laughs> yeah. all kinds of wars going on. This, this course was kind of fundamentally set up to be a really lovely mix of, of artists, guys with beards who want to be a bit geekier, arty people who want to be a bit more cody, all kinds of, t- of people, but their real goal is to create some kind of meaningful experience in a public space, which is fantastic. Amazing. How did you into it? Because obviously you're a founder of Grey World. I, I, you know, from an academic point of view, I, I, I missed out on, on almost all of that. Um, I started Grey World when I was 17, so we've been making public art with, with or without permissions now for, well, let's just say a long time. And, <laughs> and, um, and with, as a consequence of that, after a long, sort of a long period of making work in different different places, they said, you know, would you guys like to kind of come along and, and, and help set up a course, which I did. It never gets old being called Professor, let me tell you. That's <laughs> awesome. Although, you know, you, you, you're always feeling that you're a fraud. Don't ask me anything tricky. That's all right. We feel like that all the time. <laughs> Andrew, can I ask, what's your definition of public art? And has that changed in the years in which you've been working in it? Okay, it's a really good question. Obviously, public art tends to be creative work in public space. We can all agree on that. But my definition of it, or at least... The, the one that got me most excited about it, the reason why I ended up making it, was that of public art itself. Who is the public that it's talking about? I mean, is it a public that can read Latin? I mean, I, most of the sculptures in my street have got a Latin inscription. I can't read Latin, so, oh, shit, am I not the right public? I don't know what that one is. <laughs> then you've got to ask yourself, you know, physically I'm at a distance. I can't climb on the horse. I can't play with the guy on the horse holding the big sword in the air. Why the hell is there a big polished rock at the end of my street? So there's a kind of physical and also philosophical distance between us and the work. So the definition of public for me really is that it uses the public or creates a sense with the public or the public is in the centre of it. That for me is a much more fulfilling definition of public art rather than this just, you know, it's in a public space kind of thing. Yeah, so tell us what makes a really bad or a really good piece of public art then. Obviously, the, the audience and the public are well involved in it, but what's, what's some of the worst bits you've seen? When, when does it not work? And if you wander through cities and old cities throughout the world, you'll find a, all different kinds of, of work, and yet you can genotype them. You know, it'll be like, you know, spotting styles of music. Okay, there's the figurative bloke. There's the, uh, the, the the banker with the briefcase open. There's the highly polished rock. Ah, oh, yes, I've seen a load of those. <laughs> Some of them have got holes in the middle of them. Um, and we've asked humanity, we've asked artists, to be as creative and as free as we can. And yet here, are, here it's possible for us to kind of classify them all in these kind of big families. I find that tragic. And so a, a great amount of work is lost on the viewer or the person who lives there or the, or the, or the transient human going to work because they've seen it or they've seen that type oh i know what that is it ceases to be foregrounded for any period of time you've done work in trafalgar square with trafalgar sun in 2012 so can you tell us about kind of that project in particular and kind of the reaction that you were trying to get out of that because i'm right in thinking that was for quite a short period of time right yeah it was it was for it was just over well, i mean the setup and, and takedown were longer than we actually showed the work for i think it was up for about 24 hours what we discovered with with Trafalgar Sun, and one of the most satisfying things of all about it, was that 
really what we did made us utterly realize that complex is not good. Complex certainly doesn't equal better or more interesting. Sometimes the most complicated things end up with the most simplistic outputs. And we made a big warm sun. And at five o'clock in the morning on one morning, people got up out of their warm beds and went to a cold place in the middle of town, but swore blind that they could feel the warmth from this sun, giving them extra sunlight on the gloomiest day of the year. And it was a massive success. I mean, it was visually easy to share in this kind of world we live in now where it's all about hashtags and, you know, Facebook posts. People tend to judge successes of works like that. And, I mean, it, it, was just, it was just a massive eye-opener for us. For you or for your students, what is the dream job? What's the commission you want to get phoned about? Now, I suppose the dream commission really is that if you're, you know what you want to do, if you know where you're going with your artwork, then you want a commission that says, look, we have trust in you and we like the work you make. Experiment, play, make something good. If you can get that, you're, you're, you're a happy guy. Now, of course, the other element of that is that you can fail, you know, and that happens. And as an artist, you don't want to fail. You certainly don't want to fail if somebody else has, has paid for the materials and paid you a fee to do it. But the, the risk of failure is an inherent part of trying something new and different. And so you want a commissioner who's got that sense. Of course, they choose you because they hope you're a safe pair of hands and you'll do something fantastic. But the sense of risk is absolutely key to a really good commission. I can't not ask you what your favourite piece of public art is. I'm fascinated. Oh. You've got to pick one. I have. And it's just really, really tough. I mean, all I can think of is bad art. I've spent so much of my career being rude about other people's <laughs> uh, anonymous... Isn't that dreadful? Isn't that, what does it say about me? <laughs> terrible, terrible. Work that I like. There's um, there's a great artist called Rafael Lozano Hemmer. Do you know him? No, he um, you've got to check him out. Right, he did a work called Understand. It's a really nice piece. Big big wall in the middle of town. Imagine like four or five stories high. Mm-hmm. And as you walk through it, there's a big bright light. So your shadow falls up this wall, and your shadow is like you know three or four floors high, massive shadow. But exactly in the area of your shadow. Is, is, is video that he's curated that appears only in that shape of you and it's perfectly done. So as you walk through it, you just get these kind of little U-shaped slices of this film he's made and it's just it's just really cool. Um, I hate him for that. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of professional jealousy. He's a superb artist. Well done, mate. Um, <laughs> you know. It's interesting you pick something that's kind of um, digital and interactive. How, how much now is kind of the role of technology playing in public art and do you think that makes it more accessible or do you think it actually makes people actually really struggle with understanding what it is technology if it's used well should be invisible at least in my work there are artists who define themselves as kind of technological artists or digital artists or whatever i, I mean i certainly don't but in that sense i think the aesthetic or the smell of the technology is an important part of what they're trying to do but in my work at least from my point of view if I want to make a successful public artwork, that sense of technology can be, as you say, distancing, push you away from that, 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 that being in the centre of the work. So I need to make my technology invisible, but, and if I use it, I need it to, to uh, provide me or give me something which is impossible any other way. You know, it's about the fact that you're there and the bus stop is singing the colours of your clothes or, you know, the floor is sounding like walking through crunchy snow when you walk through across carpet. And uh, as a final point, what do you think of David Shrigley's thumb? I, I love David Shrigley, generally. I think he's one of the funniest comedians working in, in the UK. I think it takes a little bit more scrutiny to make a good piece of work. And I'm not sure that the piece of work he's got there now has got a lot of longevity, certainly not got a lot of value in my mind. Fair enough. There you go. We'll touch our opinion. So um, thanks so much for talking to us, Andrew. If people want to find out anything more about what you do, um, where can they yeah. go? Go to greyworld.org. That's greyworld with an E. That's Westerners. Ian there, not an A, we're not American. Greyworld.org, have a little look at there. And if you're interested in goldsmiths, have a look at that. It's gold.ac.arc. Um, they do lots of interesting things. They do, the, you know, obviously goldsmiths and is known for the young British artists and the Damien Hurst, but there's a whole slice there which is involved in new media and, uh, you know, generative art, stuff that I'm interested in. And you could do a lot worse and have a, come along and have a little look. Superb. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Best of luck with the pirate ship. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye-bye. Will, what did you think of Andrew? He said a number of things that really resonated. I think his point about it being a meaningful experience in public space, I think, adds a bit of weight to that kind of, like, 
don't just stick stuff for the sake of sticking stuff somewhere. Like try and have it make a meaningful response and experience, which I thought was great. I thought the stuff about technology and when technology plays a role in public art, it should be invisible. I think is absolutely spot on. And I love that he's opinionated enough to kind of go, he thinks Doji is great, but it, the work doesn't have longevity. It's weird also when you hear him talk about it, you go, oh yeah, maybe it doesn't have longevity. Maybe I am this complete heathen that's just like, oh, wicked, thumbs up. But I think Andrew's take on successful public art is quite similar to what we were talking about in the fact that, you know, simple, direct, meaningful, means something to the person that's looking at it in the place it is. Seems to make total sense, right? I'm Lee Davis. I'm a train driver here at Tyne Yard. We move freight north and south mainly coal, petrol and steel. When I first found out about the Angel, I thought £800,000 was a lot of money for a piece of artwork. But then again, why not? Down south, there's a lot more money for opera houses, theatres and other sculptures. So why not the north? I thought the idea of an Angel was a bit of a strange one. But um, Alan Shearer is God up here, so why not have an Angel? How many of the top 10 Lonely Planet most successful pieces of public art can you name? Is it in the world? In the world. So don't look at your sheet. How many can you name? So you've got to go for the obvious things. Go on then. So Angel of the North. Ding. Number one. That is the most successful piece of public art according to Lonely Planet. Okay. A Banksy. Banksy's in there. Just A specific one? Or? Just says Banksy number Graffiti, four. number four. So then we've got to think of big kind of famous statues. So I'm thinking... Well, Statue of Liberty. Yeah, that's on there. Really? You, you knew that was on there. I yeah. did not know that was on there. <laughs> Mount Rushmore. But hang on, before we move on, Statue of Liberty and Mount Rushmore, both on it, five and ten respectively. Okay. Isn't it interesting that they're counted as pieces of public art? What about the Eiffel Tower? What about Big Ben? The Eiffel Tower is, is obviously a tower, whereas the Statue of Liberty and it's very what, naming. I, yeah, but can a tower not be a piece of public art? I would I would guess that that's considered a piece of architecture. Ah, got it. So a statue is not architecture. But even though you can walk around, you know, Statue of Liberty's hat. Yeah, interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought of the walking around the hat. Um, have you seen that traffic light tree? I think it's in Tower Hamlets or Bethnal Green. It's in Canary Wharf now, where it's like loads of traffic lights all together look like a tree and everyone was annoyed because they thought it was the real traffic lights. But are you not staggered that that got signed off? Like, with real lights synchronised in the middle of a roundabout? Like, surely that's going to happen? Was it, I don't think it was in the middle of a roundabout, was it? Well, it wasn't like next to traffic lights, but I think it was, it was near enough to cars. I mean, it looks crazy. We're talking 100 lights plus within the whole thing. I think anyone could go, it was on green. One of them over there was on green and I looked <laughs> But you're at right. I mean, is it mad it's been signed off or are we just absolutely mental for thinking that's the right thing? But also, why should we be putting people in that position to decide if those traffic lights are real or not? But I like it. I think visually it looks amazing. Great idea, but it caused lots of controversy, Will. Is that a good thing? Depends if you're looking for controversy or not. <laughs> if you're looking for peace and harmony, no. But I tell you what, here's, here's something we haven't spoken about yet. Obviously, it must just... And this is what everyone's thinking about listening to this podcast is, yeah, but just talk about it. It's a waste of money. It is a waste of money spending millions of pounds on statues. I, I do agree, and I definitely see that point of view. And I definitely see that point of view in 2017 when there are people up against it that I think that money could be could be better spent. And when you think of things like the statues of Queen Victoria or or kind of notable figures, like they obviously come from times where... That, that money kind of existed where they just went, yeah, go and, go and build that statue or build that kind of representation of a, a historical figure. Whereas now, I do think everything is scrutinised and with the nature of news and things just getting blown out of all proportion, it's, it must be a much more difficult task to do. Um, that's probably a good point, actually, to think about our next guest, Posey Met, a listings advisor of Historic England. Hello, Posey. Hi, Posey. Hello, hi. So you're a listings advisor at Historic England. Tell us what that means. What, what is your role at Historic England? Well, um, one of Historic England's statutory roles is to advise the government on whether buildings or structures should be added to the list of buildings of special architectural historic interest. And so my job is to make assessments of, of buildings or sites or pieces of sculpture and make a recommendation as to whether or not it should be added to the list. No pressure. <laughs> so how often does a piece of public art kind of crop up as opposed to kind of historical buildings? Well, I mean, it varies quite a lot, but certainly public art is something which 
which has been and, and continues to be under threat. I mean, it tends to be that earlier pieces of public art um, in the form of memorials or commemorative sculptures, they're quite often already protected. And certainly the, the Victorians were quite enthusiastic about commemoration and there's lots of pieces of Victorian sculpture which are already listed. But certainly what's under threat, particularly at the moment, is more pieces of work which um, were created after the Second World War. It was a period really where there was quite a, a lot of enthusiasm for this sort of thing, um, putting up new pieces of public art in new shopping centres or housing estates. And that tends to be some of the artwork which is more under threat. Supposedly, for our more cynical viewers on the bus home in the freezing cold and in the rain, why do we need it? Why is public art valuable? Why should we be protecting it? Well, it's quite interesting, actually. I think the, the, the question tells us quite a lot about people's attitude towards public art. We take it for granted. And it's easy to forget that not all that long ago, pieces of public art were about commemorating people, things, events. And of course, that's that's important. But it is comparatively recently that the idea of having art in public spaces simply for the sake of enriching those spaces, making those spaces better and more interesting. With the end of the Second World War, there was a huge sort of wave of reconstruction. And there was a real feeling that actually we it was really important to create spaces for everyone that were better than what had gone before, that were were better places to live, better places to work. Um, And so that's why we get these pieces of sculpture and pieces of public art being introduced. And we've come to take them for granted. And I think it's very easy to walk past these things and not notice them. But actually, it's only when they come under threat and we face losing them that actually we begin to realise how much they form a sort of intricate element of our understanding of, of, of everyday places. Are there places in the country that surprise you as to the way in which they embraced kind of public art kind of outside of London? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think, again, going back to the development of new towns after the, after the Second World War, uh, places like Harlow, which um, obviously not that far north of London, but uh, it was one of the new towns. And when that was constructed from the outset, there was a big enthusiasm for commissioning pieces of public sculpture for the town centres and the new new housing housing estates. And um, so they actually have a, a wonderful collection of public sculpture. And there was an arts trust set up to, to look after those pieces of sculpture. And they're still really valued. And another new town, which has, has been in the news recently because it's the 50th, 50th birthday of Milton Keynes. Again, Milton Keynes was another place where actually sculpture was always, from the outset, part of building a new town it was always part of that vision and again Milton Keynes is very enthusiastic like Harlow at celebrating their pieces of public art and and recognizing them and and encouraging people to to go off and find it and to look at it and to understand it. For something like public art that obviously lives within the realm of art and is more often not is a very subjective thing what is that process to objectively kind of critique almost the value of the things that you're looking at. And we we don't approach it as as art critics. We're not art critics. I guess the sorts of questions we we ask ourselves when we're assessing a piece, we need to understand the context of the piece. So who made it? Why did they make it? Who commissioned it? How did it come to be there? Why was that site chosen? Why does the piece of art look the way it does? And and actually starting to be able to, to answer some of those questions, we can then say, well, actually... Is that important? Yes or no? And and so, I mean, obviously a, a piece needs to have a certain aesthetic appeal to it. I mean, it doesn't need to be beautiful. Of course, good art can, can not be beautiful, but just simply very powerful. But understanding the context in which a piece came to be, where it is and, and the way it is, is quite important because it, it gives us then a, an understanding of the piece almost as a, as, as a historical artefact. It tells us something about what was happening uh, in broader society and cultural spheres at the time that the piece was made. Most of what we're looking at, almost without exception, is over 30 years old. And we need to have that sort of period of time in order to get some sort of historical perspective on the piece of artwork. We need to understand how important the artist is, how important that piece of work is to the artist's body of work and so that we can then place it within a slightly broader context. Well, I'm fascinated by um, 
kind of grade one, grade two, grade three listing. Yeah. How does it work? There, I mean, there's three three grades of listing: grade two, grade two star, and grade one. And the vast majority of things that are listed are listed at grade two. It's something like about ninety six percent of all listed buildings or structures are listed at grade two. Then grade two star is is the next level up, and then there's grade one, and grade one is a very, very small percentage of, of listings are at grade one. Now, the gradings do reflect, in effect... The, the level of importance that is is placed on these things. I mean, all of anything that is listed is is effectively designated as being nationally important. Posey, are there any pieces of public art that are at that top grade that our listeners might know? I mean, Nelson's column, for example, is, is grade one listed, um, and and as you can imagine, that's that is the sort of top, <laughs> top of the pops when it comes to <laughs> yeah, listing public art. So I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, in terms of more recent pieces of public art, uh, we recently or fairly recently listed uh, a piece by Barbara Hepworth um, at Grade 2 Star. And that is the piece on the side of the John Lewis on Oxford Street. And it's called Winged Figure. And, and it, is, it is a beautiful piece of sculpture and uh, it's very sort of prominent position hovering above Oxford Street makes it you know the, the the location of it is really quite quite something so um so yes if 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 any of your listeners haven't noticed it there then they just need to to look up as they walk down Oxford Street and they'll see it there I guess you haven't looked at any of the pieces of work that have been on the fourth plinth I'm just interested if any pieces you think have have had real value that have been on there one of the things about the fourth plinth project is the fact that because the pieces are temporary I think there's something about pieces of artwork that are temporary, which allows there to be a sort of a freedom and a sort of maybe a sense of playfulness with the pieces of sculpture that that maybe maybe the artist would feel more pressure, come up with something much more sort of cerebral and complex if they knew their piece of artwork mm. was going to be permanent. I mean, examples like the massive blue cockerel, I mean, it's a sort of an extraordinary, very bold, expressive piece of artwork. And maybe a lot of people would look at it and say, oh, well, you know, I don't get that. What's that all about? But it doesn't really matter in a way because if it makes you stop and look and think, I think it's doing its job. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um if people are interested to find out more about what you do, Posey, where could they go? Well, the Historic England website uh, is probably the best place to start. And there's also the National Heritage List for England, which you can get to through our website, which is the list. So when we talk about something being listed, there is actually a list and it's online and you can go and and use a, a map search or a word search to see what, what buildings and structures in your area are listed. Amazing. Thank you so much, Posey. Thanks for taking the time. Not at all. Thank you. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? It's a nuts job. But I think she made some great points. I love the idea that, you know, Nelson's column is the Don. We're talking about Trafalgar Square, the plinths, and we're not even talking about the actual major piece of public art that's grade one million star listed in the middle. It's amazing. I like also what she was talking about where a piece of public art should be about improving somewhere, improving a place to be a little bit better than it was before that piece of public art. And I think that's a that's a really nice definition of it and kind of probably quite an easy one to get out of for the artists as well. Like, well, obviously the place is better now that we've got this. I think it's fascinating as well that the new towns obviously embraced it as part of the planning of, right, we're going to build a new town, what does it need? Um, let's stick some art in there, let's get some art in there and plan around it. And it, it's actually a mm. conscious thought from the off as opposed to now Actually, if you go in your local area, right, yep, council wants to do a bit of public art, you'd have to go, right, okay, what are we gonna, where are we going to put it? Where does mm. it fit in? How does it react to the environment within it? Whereas, obviously, to start from scratch, kind of Sim City-esque, you go, yep. Do you think anyone's ever moved to Milton Keynes for the art? Yes. <laughs> no way. Why not? <laughs> well, of course they didn't. They moved there for cheap housing and roundabouts, didn't they? There's no way someone went, oh, where shall I live? Right. I'll go where the great public art is. I do think the idea of moving somewhere, I think local artwork could influence that Agree. decision. <laughs> but Milton Keynes? Um, what if what anyone... have you got against Milton Keynes? Nothing. What has if... Milton Keynes ever done to you? If, if anyone has ever moved anywhere for public art, please email us um, and we'd love to know because we've set this argument, especially if you moved to Milton Keynes for the art. If you were planning a town... Got a, you know, pigeon. You can decide how big. Pigeon. Back to the pigeon. You're right still plucking that pigeon. Massive pigeon in the middle. Wow. AB, that's nice at the com if you ever want to commission it. Fourth plinthers. Um, what are you going for? Are you going for like bronze or stone? No, no, no. no marble? feathers. Feathers, mate. Real. Real. It's got to look exactly like a real pigeon. 
that's what's going to fuck up the other pigeons. <laughs> They're going to go, whoa, big pigeon. Many items in this year's open-air exhibition of sculpture in Battersea Park are getting double takes. Whether from horror or sheer pleasure, I'll leave you to guess. This, for the record, is the work of that master sculptor Henry Moore, Standing Figure. You could be excused for calling this piece any old iron, and you're right, they are car bumpers reformed by Jason Seeley. You may not like modern sculpture, but all the artists ask is that their work should make you stop, look, and think. If you were judging the fourth plinth, what would be the criteria you'd be looking for? I'd be looking for something that makes people stop, look, and think, something that wasn't too difficult to understand. Is there anything you'd be looking for now, knowing what we know? I think the interesting thing with the fourth plinth is I think it has to do something different to the one that's gone before. I don't think you can have another one that's as fun as the David Trigley one. And I think that's the opportunity that Fourth Plinth has is you get to mix it up and you get to make slightly different points. I think if it always became about kind of very jovial, comical thing, you look at that shortlist and you can get rid of a few by going, well, actually, no, that's not fun. That's actually trying to make a point about political unrest in the Middle East. And, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, you're, you're probably going to go for the, the camper van with the ladders and oil tins. And it's, it's, I think that's what I would like to see. But I do think there's an opportunity to mix it up and put something different in front of people. So this year's shortlist for the fourth plinth has produced some fascinating works. And one of the pieces that receives so much discussion is The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, conceived by our next guest, Michael Rakovitz, who we have on the phone from Chicago. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Very well, very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on being shortlisted for the fourth plinth. Um, Can you start off by kind of telling us more about the piece, The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, and where it comes from? Sure. The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist started in 2006 as a project that was devoted to, as its centerpiece, reconstruct life-size, the objects that were listed as looted, destroyed, damaged, or status unknown from the Iraq Museum after the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. You know, many of us remember seeing the images on TV. For me, it became the first moment of pathos that opened up in the Iraq War, where regardless of what one's position was for or against the invasion, this was clearly a tragedy that went beyond Iraq, and it was a a human tragedy as opposed to one that was just simply local. And the last thing I'll say is that the title of the piece actually comes from the name of the processional way that ran through the Ishtar Gate in ancient Babylon, which was Ajibor Shapu, which translates directly into the invisible enemy should not exist and is the most poetic street name I've ever heard. Yeah, amazing. How did the shortlisting come about? How did it happen? Well, I I was nominated to submit a proposal in October of 2015, which totally took me by surprise and itself was a real honor. And um, I submitted the proposal, which was pretty much a set of drawings that that explained the project, explained that the Lamassu, this winged deity, was the exact same length as the fourth plinth itself and that... It it was a, an artifact that was destroyed by ISIS in February of 2015 and was something that I saw as a kind of continuation of this destruction of human cultural patrimony in the aftermath of the war. And in March of last year, or 2016, I found out I'd been shortlisted and me, me and my assistants made the maquette in our studio. And the rest is is right there in front of you guys at the National Gallery. Wow, amazing. So um, if it gets chosen, what what does success look like? What are you hoping the piece will do for the passers-by of London and Trafalgar Square? Well, I mean, it's an incredible public square. And I think that, you know, it's in keeping with the way that many public squares are, are around the world. And it's a place where people convene. It's also a place where people pass through. And monuments have a tendency to lose their message when they're permanent. I've often said that the best way to forget somebody is to name a building after them so that their names disappear into an address <laughs> and just become information. And I think that one of the great things about the fourth plinth is that you do have this kind of temporal rotation of different works that that are on there for, you know, I don't know, 18 months or in some cases I think it's been up for a year 
maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that it's temporary allows for it to always kind of renew its ability to speak to an audience. And and when I was uh, 10 years old, I remember we went to visit my mom's uncle who, you know, my mom's family comes from Iraq and my uncle Niazi had moved his family to the UK where my mom's father moved to to New York. And I remember being in, in Trafalgar Square and learning about the cannons that had been melted down to become part of the uh, the capitals on the uh, Nelson's column. And, um, and just thinking about the power of that recycling of materials. And so when I think about rebuilding the Lamassu, it's very much in keeping with the ethos of the 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 project that's been happening for about 11 years now, which is that I enlist the food packaging of Middle Eastern foodstuffs and the Arabic-English newspapers that one finds throughout the United States that are given away for free to Middle Eastern immigrants. And so it's these traces of cultural visibility that are used to make these things that are for all intents and purposes now invisible. And so when I thought about what material to make the Lamassu out of, it was clear that papier-mâché would not be a good idea for an outdoor space. And so <laughs> one of the projects that I've done long-term is this deep investigation into the Iraqi date industry, which was, um, you know, the best in the world and was, you know, their second largest export next to oil. And um, there were 30 million date palms in Iraq before the Iran-Iraq war. And after that um, war had concluded, there were about... 16 million. And at the end of 2003 invasion, there was only 3 million. And it's this this ecological casualty that runs side by side with the human and cultural one that I wanted to make present. And so this Lamasa will be made of those metal date cans and the graphics that are used to advertise it, uh, which are wild and really beautiful, become the anatomy of this resurrected deity that holds all the memories of Nineveh and continues to protect it, but exists in the Trafalgar Square as a kind of ghost or a refugee with hopes to one day return to Iraq. I guess you've done lots of public art projects in your practice. And I mean, for every champion of public art and how important it is, there's obviously here, especially with the fourth planet, there's always a lot of cynicism too, which I'm sure you've come across in other projects. How do you deal with people thinking, oh God, public art, what a waste of money, what a waste of time? How do you react to that in your own practice? Well, I mean, that's one of the easiest arguments to make and it's like low-hanging fruit, I think, (laughs) when people talk about the you know, the, the expenditures of tax money or what a city decides to fund. And, you know, you don't hear the same outcry about the more nefarious things that happen. And I, you know, I point to the funding of military and, uh, you know, research even that, that, that in one way or another fuels the military industrial complex. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. I think that our is often seen as useless. And I maintain that, you know, art can be useful. And I'm interested in those intersections between art and architecture and design. And very often, you know, the work that I do uses uh, functionality as a way to, um, to essentially uh, create an unexpected reaction for the viewer. I'm interested in, in problem solving that's also troublemaking. Um, however, I do think that art should insist on its ability to also be useless. Um, it's one of the few places where one can invest their, their time and their energy into something that will stand as a bit of a sphinx and will confound. But in that, in that being confounded, people have the ability to project their own meanings and their own relationships into something that doesn't so easily define itself or compartmentalize itself. As the artist, do you make any kind of compromise or consideration to the fact that it's a piece of public art and the way in which people are going to interact with it versus if it was going to live in a gallery and had been commissioned within within that context? I don't think in this case there's been much of a kind of oh a compromise. The project itself is one that I see as a whole and as a kind of project that unfortunately will never end. More than 8,000 objects are still missing from the Iraq Museum. 
of the 15,000 that were initially looted. And my studio and I, we've, we've made about 600. And wow. it's clearly a project that will outlive me and my studio. There's a, a really important layer in that, which is that history can never be reconstructed. You know, that in as much as there's a kind of effort to rebuild these artifacts, there's always a difference. You know, there's, uh, in this case, it's not being carved out of limestone and, and it's not the same hands and the same traces of fingers as the Assyrian sculptors who made it back in 700 BC, you know, but I'd say the only compromise really was thinking about something that would stand up to the weather over an 18 month period of time. And that was using these tin plate steel date cans. Well, I think you've got our vote. Definitely. <laughs> oh, thank Not you. that we have any influence on it whatsoever. <laughs> but I think, um, no, I think it's great. And this might be a stupid question, Michael, but is there any kind of brief? Or is it completely up to the artist? Well, you know, they did send us a, a PDF of what they felt the, the work should do. And, and, you know, they mentioned all the right things that the work should challenge and capture the imagination of the public, that it should be something that's bold. Um, and, um, and I think that what the, uh, what the GLA is devoted to and what the mayor's office is devoted to is the kind of thing that I wish, wish all the cities uh, around the world were devoted to, which is, you know, that, that art can really, you know, do something even through its discomforts, you know, to enrich society. And so the, the brief was very, very general. You know, it wasn't there wasn't any kind of art direction whatsoever, just that they wanted the best possible ideas. Michael, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, if people want to find out more about what you do, where, where can they go? Well, I do have a website that's constantly, um, you know, falling out of date. And what I, what, one that I hope to uh, update more often, it's uh, www.michaelrakowitz.com. Perfect. Michael, thank you so much and best of luck. Really nice to talk to you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much. Artie Waits, right? That was deep thought and consideration. Yeah, definitely more than we were giving it, I think. Um, isn't it amazing how calm an artist like that can be? Yeah. Just about to, I mean, even the work being in the in the gallery already, right? It's going under such scrutiny. The idea that it might be on a plinth for 18 months for everyone to see just seems very relaxed about the whole thing. But I guess, you know, it's a dream a dream commission. Uh, right? Also, just just little things like the reality of the material. So it's like, there's a, it's a whole new consideration as to how to make the work that he's been making for, for years, but actually that's going to stand up to the British weather for... You love a bit of health and safety, don't you? You love some logistics. Yep. Moving away from health and safety, art is powerful. I think I took that very much like... <laughs> no, he said, I think he summed it up really nicely, where it's like there's... Art can do things that other forms of commun communication just can't. And I think actually if you get it right, an idea or a, an opinion can really resonate with people. It's an incredibly pure, beautiful idea, isn't it? All of these things have been lost through something that should never have happened. And so I'm going to recreate them so that people can remember them. It's kind of, it's mega pure, isn't it? But I think people can remember them and people can be, can be reminded to the fact of the kind of atrocity of, of them being destroyed in the first place. And I think, I think that's why it's so fascinating to try and judge that against a big thumb. Yeah, I think you're right. But equally, that meaning is lost on 99.9% .9 of the people who are going to see that work if it does get chosen. And that's the bit that I really, I've, I've learned over this last couple of hours chatting about it, that actually, there's so much that's lost in any piece of artwork that's going to go public, because you can't do the explanation that we just got from Michael talking to him about what that thing means. And so, again, I come back to um, what Andrew said from Grey World about the idea that this immediacy still needs to exist there. No matter how amazing and beautiful and pure the concept is that Michael's come up with, it has to be conveyed somehow to that person who's walking through the pigeons. But I, I'd be fascinated that if it is picked and you, you were to walk down to Trafalgar Square and, and kind of interview people and say, tell me about it, what does it mean? Actually, it's to, I bet you it's the kind of thing that's very... Once you hear it once, it stays with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a recreation of a statue that got destroyed through... Um, ISIS. I, I think that's the kind of thing that it's it's simple enough mm. that it will hopefully resonate and and be something that people are aware of. I just had an emergency briefing from the brilliant artist Katerina about her interpretation of this.
fantastic work that we're about to unveil. And she said it was all to do with a, 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 a woman's rendition of a, of a man. There you go, or something like that. And I think this is one of those occasions when politicians have to resist any kind of artistic interpretation. Here it is, the big blue bird. Interesting idea, shall we say. Blue cockerel? No, it's no. Not, definitely not French, that's an English cockerel. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's lovely. I've got a question for you. Yes. After all that, after speaking to those three people and your understanding of public art becoming so much more, who should get the commission, who should win the fourth plinth from the, the shortlist that we've seen? Definitely Michael, because he's the only one we've spoken to. You know, I've got a soft spot for him. The concept's great. It looks great. I'm in. Michael wins. How about you? It's the only one we spoke about, really. <laughs> I think for the thought and the, the rationale and everything, I think Michael's work, I think on a humour, visual, that side of it, I think Damien Ortega's stuff, Highway, which is the uh, VW uh, pickup with the scaffolding and the oil drums and the ladder. I think visually that's the kind of thing that I would want to see. But having said that, I'm definitely um, kind of rooting for Michael. I want to go and look more at Michael's work mm. and kind of understand it a little bit more and, and see what the kind of the other 500 and um, 600 pieces are that he's made already. And also what we said right at the beginning about there needs to be some contrast and some pace to the David, to follow David Shrigley, right? Actually, a really hard-hitting political message would actually be really interesting to see the reaction on, right? We know what a big blue cock or a massive um, thumbs-up does to people in Trafalgar Square, but actually it'd be really nice to see what, what the reaction might be. Um, how do you feel about public art in general? More excited about it after this or...? I think more excited about the opportunity it has. And I think I will look at public art differently, but I think I'm also interested to see what is commissioned kind of now with with a kind of a, a better understanding of it. What about yourself? What, what are you taking away from it? You know what? I feel quite similar about it. I still feel like I know what I want public art to do for me. I have definitely a better understanding of it, but still I want to walk past the thumb and I want to smile and I want to laugh and I want to show it to my mate. I don't, I don't want any more from a bit of public art. Why did we time. bother talking about it for so long <laughs> if, if you were unprepared to change your mind? Hang on, you came up with a website called It's Nice That. I mean, <laughs> it does what it says on the tin. There's mate. a bit of art critic for you. Yeah. This episode of the It's Nice That podcast was brought to you by It's Nice That and Radio Wolfgang. It featured me, Will Hudson, and Alex Beck talking to Andrew Chauvin, Posey Metz and Michael Rakowitz. The executive producer was Harry Watson, the assistant producer Natalia Rodriguez and the producer was Ivor Manley. Ding, 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 ding.